welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 63 for September 2016. I am your co-host the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? I'm all right, Quinn. It uh, feels like just a month ago that we did another one of these, but it was a month ago, wasn't it? It, Yeah, the months go by quickly or very (laughs) slowly, I guess, depending on how much you enjoy doing this. (laughs) How are you, Quinn? uh, I'm I'm doing good. Uh, it's been a busy work, uh, busy month at uh, work, but uh, have managed to squeeze a little bit of uh, retro stuff in, which we uh, can talk about. Actually, uh, the breaking news uh, as of actually last night, as we record this, uh, James Littlejohn uh, found an incompatibility between uh, the Megabee uh, ROM, which I was selling at Kansas Fest, and the uh, Prodos 2.4 update from John Brooks, which we'll be talking about later oh. in the show. So, yeah, apparently the two of them don't like each other. So uh, me and John have been going back and forth on Twitter and email trying to work that out. Uh, Some little quirk in how uh, the two of them are doing things. So uh, we'll figure that out. Um, But uh, aside from uh, that, everything uh, is going peachy over here. How about you? Any uh, retro stuff going on? Um, Actually, I've been spending a lot of time with my Hero Junior robot and getting that thing back up and running because it arrived uh, without, it arrived sans battery or charger. And uh, thanks to Henry Corbis over at the Ultimate Micro, I now have a charger and I ordered a new battery kit and all kinds of stuff. So I hope to have that up and running soon, which is great because it has a nice big RS232 port on the back, which I'm hoping I can just plug right into my Apple II and start bit banging away. Very cool. Yeah, I noticed a I noticed a hero robot section suddenly appeared on the reactive micro storefront. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's why. Well, you know, Henry, if he can sell one, he can sell ten. Sorry, <laughs> exactly. Henry. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe if he can sell ten, he can sell hundred. You know. That's right. <laughs> that's how it starts. Yep. I'm Ben Heck, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right. Well, we've, uh, we've got a fun interview today. Uh, speaking of Kansas Fest, um, we uh, we always like to see new faces at K-Fest. And uh, this year, as in many previous years, there's been a, a sharp uptick in new attendees. And uh, one of those new attendees joins us here today. Uh, we have Kate Scott-Nicky on the show. And uh, she's uh, she made quite a splash this year at uh, K-Fest. So uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I guess, I guess you'd put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Kate. It's nice to have you. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you. Okay. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like we always like to start, uh, tell us about your journey to the Apple II. How did you start with it? Um, I started with it when I was a little, little kid. Um, and we had an Apple IIc when I was growing up. My dad um, got it for us when I was in fifth grade, and I spent a lot of time playing with it. And it was just something I was, I was really annoyed. I remember when he sold it. So it's like, I finally got my own money and my own life. And I'm like, I want to get the stuff I had when I was a kid. So I started, you know, I picked up a 2E and a 2 for free. Wow. And then I was like, I was just randomly on the internet. And I was like, wait, there's a convention for this stuff. And about, it took me about three years to get my life together. And I was like, and I went and it was awesome. And I can't wait to go back. <laughs> That's usually the progression of wait. There's a there's a conference for this, and then <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been to anime cons, and I've been to gaming cons, and I've been to sci-fi cons. So I guess it doesn't surprise me that there's an Apple II con. Sure, but why not? Sure, let's go. 
Yeah, it uh, always starts with that first Google. It's like, oh, I remember this thing. And oh, there's other people that use these. Oh, there's websites. Oh, there's podcasts. Oh, there's a conference. Oh, my gosh. It's huge. <laughs> so between your uh, your dad getting rid of your 2C and then the, uh, the, the recent acquisitions, has, has your life been uh, free of Apple II? Or? Um, I played around with emulators when I, you know, when I went to college and I found out they had like NES emulators and SNES emulators and somewhere along the line, I got the brilliant idea to Google Apple emulators. So I played with Apple Win and then Virtual 2 until I could get the actual metal and I still use them when I'm on the road. So I mean, I went IBM because everybody did in the 90s and then um, Windows 10 brought me back to Apple or Windows 8 brought me back to Apple in the form of I wasn't buying that, so I went Mac, and then it just kind of went from, you know, you know, you know, you know. And now I have, now I'm sitting here next to my three retro machines, and... <laughs> so, yeah, you, you mentioned um, acquiring these things for free. How did that happen? Um, I was on, I don't even remember. I've, I can't remember if it was Craigslist or if it was the KFest mailing list, but I was basically just put out there, hey, I, you know, look, want to buy or want to acquire. And somebody who was, it was right after I moved to, to, to the Washington area and said, hey, I live in, you know, this, you know, Maryland, not too far away, and I'm giving these away. And I was looking for one for an art piece that I was doing. And I was looking, he said, I would working to E, and I have this other Apple thing that doesn't work. And I was like, okay, I'll come get them. And I drove to God, grabbed a friend and drove up to Mar Columbia, Maryland and picked these things up and played with the 2E, shoved the other one under my bed till I got around to making this dress that I was going to make. And then when I pulled it out to make the dress, I realized that he handed me a low serial number Apple II. Wow. <laughs> and I decided not to take it apart. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that that would be a bad idea. So it's been, it was, it hung out under my bed until I took it to K-Fest and we got it working after a fashion. So right now it's not hooked up to anything right now. Cause it's kind of my, my show, my, this is don't, we don't touch this a whole lot. It's just there. <laughs> Understood. Uh, what's a, do you mind me asking what's the serial number on that? Um, 99, 19, I think. <laughs> I'm literally sitting next to this stuff. 9919. Wow, that's yeah, that's definitely a low number. Um, now you mentioned a third machine. You said you had three of them. Oh, I got a 2GS at Kansas Fest. Oh yeah, in fact, I saw a picture of you on uh, the Cult of Mac article. Like, <laughs> yes, I was. I, I was the meta picture for the Cult of Mac with my new shiny. Nice. Javier took it out and had we retrobrighted it, and it was it was it was like I had the whole package like starting like day minus one. It was here. We're gonna do this, and you're gonna do this, and you're gonna presenting. Oh yeah, and you're presenting. And I was just like, just kind of walked in. Is like, hi, I'm here, and I'm gonna take over the ah, place. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an iconic uh, K Fest photo of you sitting on the floor of the uh, Coker and Hall uh, lobby area playing with the two GS. We're putting my keyboard back together. Yeah. <laughs> So is this your first experience with a 2GS? Um, yeah, I mean, aside from the, you know, playing with the ones we had at school, which was basically, look, it's Oregon Trail, right. yay! <laughs> yep. Um, now, I, I, I'm, I saw, I did see your, uh, the Kansas Fest uh, presentation that they put up here, silicon molding and rosin casting, and I've, I also know that you won the, the tie contest, and we'll get to details on that in just a minute, but it seems like you have a really strong background in engine of things. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I when I first started going to anime cons, the the I was I, I 
I wanted to do costumes. I've always loved dressing up and I've always loved Halloween. And so I started making costumes and going to anime and sci-fi cons and competing in, in costume contests and winning awards. I've, I've won a bunch of awards for costumes. And in the pl- process, you learn, you know, you learn how to sew, but you also learn, you know, I want to make this prop. I want to make this piece of jewelry. I want to make this thing. So I, you have to learn how to do it. So I, you know, I know how to resin, I know how to silicone mold. I know how to resin cast. I know how to carve wood. I know how to carve styrofoam. I know how to do paper mache. There's like all kinds of weird things I know how to do. <laughs> and it was kind of like one of those, I was always, I was, when I was, then when I was originally the, the second thought for the, the, the um, art piece I was doing, it was a, it was a dress actually. I did not wear this dress to K-Fest because it's too hard. I was afraid I would get something on it. But um, I have an Apple II themed like ball dress too. And the second thought was take some of the keys off the two and cast them to make the jewelry I wanted to make. And then I found out how hard that was and didn't do that either. But that led me to say, well, you know, I bet there's a bunch of guys, I bet, you know, people would be interested in this because 3D printing is hard and 3D printing is expensive and 3D printing is still kind of a pain in the butt. This is not. So I I emailed the committee, hey, do you think this would be? And they're like, oh, my gosh, yes. (laughs) And then even when I got there, it was really weird because I like like this first like Tuesday or or Wednesday. I can't even remember. It's like there's like a seven day blur in my memory. That's Kansas Fest. And they're like, oh, I can't wait for your presentation. And I'm like, uh, okay. (laughs) And then even at the end, when I I brought out the candy I had made, and everybody's like, do you have enough for the room? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I wasn't expecting this many people. Yeah, I think uh, I think yours was definitely one of the most popular ones. It was one that I was really glad to see. I, I really like seeing these kinds of unexpected uh, things at K-Fest. And I think that uh, your analysis of the situation really nailed it as, to, for as, as far as why people were interested. You know, I think uh, 3D printing is, is something that everyone's excited about, but it's much more primitive and much more difficult than I think most people realize, it's much more limited. And so, yeah, this sort of sort of more, more sort of old school way of making plastic parts is is like as you pointed out much easier and frankly gives a lot better results uh for most things so uh i think yeah a lot of us were really uh, really excited to to see that happen and uh you know the way you did it right on stage and showed how frankly easy it can be uh, i think was really powerful for people well, i mean i teach for a living so i mean i'm a, I'm a home ah. economics teacher in the real world so ah, okay I'm, and I also, so I, like, I had taught, I think I mentioned this in the uh, presentation, I work with our, our drama department for their shows, and I had shown them how to do that too. So it was just kind of like, yeah, I teach, so <laughs> this is this is completely natural for me. Excellent, excellent. Well, I hope you have something else lined up for next year too, because we'll, we'll want to I know, so I have, I'm not sure how I'm going to follow up this year. I'm kind of <laughs> stressing about that already. <laughs> but it sounds like you are going to be there next year. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. Now I'm already. I'm, I'm not only am I am I going to be there. I'm trying to like suck a couple of my friends into the pit with me. So <laughs> awesome, excellent. That's great. So uh, yeah, we should talk about your uh, your. You're speaking of creative things, you should talk about your tie contest entry. So for anyone who doesn't know, KFest one of the annual tra- traditions is a tie contest and. Uh, in the spirit of, of diversity, uh, it's now sort of become morphing into slowly sort of a, a goofy outfit contest. And uh, you sort of stole the show this year with a dress that you'd made. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so um, while I was working on and while I was working on the, the the actual ball gown, 
I knew that Balticon, which is the convention I was uh, competing it at, had a show and tell the next day for everybody who's in the costume contest. And I'm like, I'm going to make an outfit to wear for that. So I got, I got some felt and I made a giant poodle skirt only instead of the, so it's a tan poodle skirt, only instead of the poodle, I put a five and a quarter inch floppy on it. <laughs> and then I went out and I got, you know, I went out on the, I'd already bought the crinoline anyway. So I have this huge, like double fluff crinoline with this wool skirt. Yeah, it was, which was probably not the smartest thing to wear in Kansas City in July, <laughs> but we went outside for the picture and I about died. And then over that, I took a piece from the ball gown that I'd made. It was a cape that I made to look like the disc two drive. So the back is tan and the front is black and it has a little LED on it that actually lights up um, because I've done light up stuff in the past too. So that was easy to just solder a, an LED to a battery thing and be done. And it says disc two and the little clasp looks like the little drive door. And it was just, it was fun to make and fun to wear. And I did wear the, I wore it, you know, I wore it when I wore it at Balticon the next day. I was like, oh, you look, you match your costume. You're so cute. And I'm like, yes, I do. Thank you. <laughs> and so I, if somebody, I, all my friends wanted me to wear the other dress, but I'm like, this dress is made of velvet and crepe and if I get pizza on it, I'm just going to cry. <laughs> the, the poodle skirt I can at least take to the dry cleaner and have the pizza taken out of it. So, so I, that was the so yeah. It was just, and then it was just a black shirt. I just threw a black shirt on with it, and I own and loafers, and and I actually own a pair of Bobby socks. So I've so it was just it was fun, and it was just kind of one of those. I, I, I'd seen some really cool stuff in the past with the ties because I went and looked on a bunch of old Kansas Fest pictures. So I was just really looking forward to, to, I've, to compete, to, I don't want to say competing because I'm not, oh yeah, I am a competitive person, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I just looking forward to just showing everybody what, what I could do. Excellent. Yeah, there's a there's quite a, a long and storied history behind the tie contest. So winning that's a pretty pretty awesome thing. Yeah, I just I went in and I because I almost felt bad because I also did um, the door thing. I did third place in the door, and I'm just then going, yeah, I'm just like this random person that drove 15 hours and and took over all your things. And when <laughs> I can't, remember, I think it was Sean. He's like, no, 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 that's fine. That's what we want. We want people to come in with new ideas and new thoughts and it's okay. And don't feel bad. And yeah, yeah. So, so what was your door, uh, door entry? Um, I, I actually did a lot of it. Um, I, I went on the print shop and I, of course I have an image writer too with my, with my mm -hmm. rig and I printed the letter. I, I went into banner and I printed, so I printed like three letters at a time because I don't have the form feed paper. So I printed three letters at a time and cut them out and then colored them with crayons. Like I, you know, like I did when I was nine <laughs> and I did like a bulletin board type thing. So I had cut all the letters out and it, my door, it said Apple II forever. Kansas Fest 2016. And I think I printed the Apple and the disc and the computer and I colored them and just it's it's there's pictures of it online. And I just it looks like a teacher bulletin board <laughs> is exactly what it looks like. So it was like I'm like now everybody now everybody's giving me a hard time because I don't know because they're like, oh, you have to join Inner Hack Fest no. now. I'm like, <laughs> no, I think yeah, sure. <laughs> That was what was perfect about your doors. It looked exactly like a teacher bulletin board from 1985. Like it just, all of us have seen that. Uh, and it was fantastic. That's I mean, exactly what I was going for. Yeah. Too, yeah. Yeah. The fact that you used an actual image writer too, was pretty great. Um, <laughs> I, I'm actually impressed that you were able to, to do that. It's getting hard to find the ink cartridges that aren't all dried out. 
The black ones aren't terribly hard to find. Um, I think there's still, I know that even uh, up until my the uh, place my dad worked at, they were, it was a, they dealt used cars and they had an impact printer, even, you know, no matter how much they upgraded their system, they had to be able to use an impact printer because when you sell a car, there's like multi-part forms that, that they have to fill out. And, you know, they, I, cause I said to him, I want, aren't you guys ever going to upgrade your printer? He said, we can't because we have to, these, their state, like the state requires and re- these forms. So they have to you know, be able to fill out carbon forms. So I think I feel like there's still a lot of impact printers in industry. The color cartridges, yeah, you can't get. Now, does the image writer? I, I'm not as familiar with with that. Are do those? Are you able to re-ink those the color ones? I you could way way back when they had kits. I remember seeing them in A plus, but I mean we when. Whenever we had a color ribbon back then, my dad would hide it because he knew I would just completely destroy it. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we re-inked uh, before we had an image writer in my house. We had a, a an Epson, uh, one of those Japanese Epson clones, and uh, we would re-ink the, the ribbons. And it did mostly work. Uh, the problem is you'd get maybe one additional pass, but the actual cotton ribbon itself would wear mm-hmm. out. That was sort of well, the- that's yeah, because and that's not good. Because I, um, for one of the pieces of the the Balticon dress is a headband fasten, like it's called a fascinator. It's like what the you know what they wear, what they wear in England with the big giant headpiece, and it's made of image writer. I actually ripped apart an image writer color ribbon and washed <laughs> it and dried it and made a big flower out of it, and it's <laughs> not good cotton at all. I had to like put two or three layers in and put some some like stiffener in it before I could even work with it it's it's yeah that I can see where the impact would completely destroy them <laughs> that's that's really interesting do you have pictures of that <laughs> I do yeah I have to I'll have to send you guys some pictures of the I have pictures people took of at Balticon because then on stage I had, I took the Apple II on stage with me and all the all the guys who work in tech at the convention who are in their old school techs and they're all looking at me like where did you get that uh, I was like, it's mine. Don't touch it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, please do share pictures. We'll put them in the show notes. I will send you guys some pictures. Yeah. Now, as a, a, a what uh, what level do you teach at? High school. Okay, and have you have you found a way to integrate your love for the retro stuff into any of your teaching? <laughs> yes. Um, I do. Actually, uh, my admins have already asked me if I'm doing this lesson again. Last year, uh, I teach a course called Teachers for Tomorrow or Teacher Cadet. It's basically gives seniors a chance to experience education. We spend 18 weeks talking about child development and the history of education and theories of education. And then they go out into the community. They, like, we send them to elementary and middle schools to do what amounts to student teaching light so for, I was looking for something to do the day before Christmas because half the kids are always absent anyway. So I, I decided to do a lesson on technology technology in the classroom, what it used to be like. So I took my Apple IIe in and I took, uh, I set up a bunch of stations. So I just, Apple Win runs off a jump drive so I didn't have to mess too much with it. And I had them play Oregon Trail and Odell Lake and Number Munchers and Factory. And I had them reflect on it. I ended up doing an article in Juice GS about it. And the kids loved it. They they were just 
they thought that was like, oh my gosh, this is really fun. And I need my homeroom. I had it set up and my homeroom was like, I think my grandparents have one of these. I was like, thanks, guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> and my admins in, uh, in August, one of my assistant principals said to me, are you going to do the retro tech thing again? Because that was really cool. And I didn't get to come see it last year. And I want to see it this year. <laughs> so apparently, yes, I'm doing it again. <laughs> Awesome. So yeah, I have. And then I do, um, I sponsor the school's video game club. So I've been known to take some of the retro stuff. I also have a working NES and a working Atari 2600. So I've been known to take some of the retro gear in and have the kids and let the kids play with it. And I, I, I have, I had, I, I had a good time watching them try to play Zork. <laughs> And they enjoyed it. That was the funny thing was they just, they were like, they, they, they got eaten by the Gru and they just kept going back and trying again. Like they, they, they were actually really getting into it. I was like, okay, this is cool. Nice. Very, very cool. So do you have any other future projects planned with your Apple IIs? Like your, especially your new 2GS? I'm actually working on relearning all of my basic because I knew it once upon a time and I keep toying with learning assembly. And then all the, like I said something to our computer science teacher and he's like, why would you want to do that to yourself? (laughs) (laughs) I wore my Kansas Fest t-shirt to one of our teacher work days. And then he's like, he looked at it and he's like, really? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, it's just some assembly code. It works. We know, we, we know what it does. Uh, So that probably I'm taking it into school, messing with it, playing games on it. I, I, it's, I haven't really been messing with it too much since I got home. I got home from Kansas Fest and basically school started. Okay. So it's, and it's also been like overly warm in my house. So it's been, it's been a weird couple of months since Kansas Fest, but now things are settling down and I'm getting into actually like really messing with them. Great. So you have some, some awesome stuff next year for us to see. I hope. Yeah. So maybe, uh, maybe you will submit something to Hackfest next year. Uh, yeah. That's be- kind of actually what I was thinking. I, I, I cause I, I said, I kind of need to, to get the trifecta. <laughs> for sure. Well, you sort of, sort of got your feet wet. I should mention that I, uh, I, I roped you into judging uh, Hackfest yes. this year and uh, your assistance was much appreciated there. Uh, it was fun. Yeah. So maybe next year you'll be on the other side of the judges table. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. I'm not making any promises. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Quinn, uh, do you have any other questions for Kate? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I'm glad to hear we'll see you next year at K-Fest and looking forward to, to many other cool things. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks, Kate. Uh, we appreciate your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in July. Yes. Remember how determined your parents were to give you the gift of knowledge? no matter how many gifts it took. Today, you have a big advantage with the Apple II GS. Apple II computers are found in more schools than any other computer. Your parents gave you the world. You can give your kids the universe. All right, well, thanks, Kate, once again. And uh, Mike, we got some news to cover here. Why don't we dive into that? Sounds good to me. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. So uh, we talked last month about the uh, reborn VCF West. Uh, What do we got here, Mike? Some pictures? 
Yeah, so somebody posted a handful of pictures, not a whole lot, but a few of them um, on Imager. And you can go there right now. It starts out with a picture of Topo, the, the robot that wishes it were my hero, but isn't it? <laughs> I'm kidding. I really want one of those, too. It's a cool-looking robot. And it goes kind of through some of the um, uh, more of the machine close-ups, which are, are cool, but it doesn't really give you a good perspective on like how many people are there, what the setup is like, but still uh, a lot of fun to look through as well. And um, I always am interested in seeing pictures of the conventions that I can't get to that aren't necessarily Apple II based, uh, some of the equipment and the people that show up there. So Yeah. Yeah, there's some great photos in there. My only wish is that there was more captioning of them because um, like the f- – there's the first few there, I think, are like original Amiga uh, prototype uh, boards, you know, where they had like where each custom chip was a giant PCB hand, you know, wire wrapped and stuff. And I think that's what those first pictures are. But uh, there's no captions, so I'm not really sure. But uh, some neat hardware there. Yeah, well, and, and speaking of uncaptioned pictures, there's like a, there's a photo of um, looks like a little camera that says Cyclops on the side and underneath it on a piece of paper is handwritten original Altair Cyclops, which I think is video capture for like, you know, that old Altair. And and I wish I knew more about that, but yeah, there's, Hmm. there's not a lot of detail there. Yeah. Very cool. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Next up, we've got something on the Cosin soft strip, which uh, myself, like possibly many of our readers, uh, this was brought back into our minds by a recent Antic uh, Atari podcast. They actually did a, kind of a series on uh, on this thing, and uh, I think it was it was mainly an Apple II thing, but it was it did exist on a couple other eight bits as well. And uh, for anyone who doesn't remember this thing, there was this and a couple of other I think competing ones that I seem to recall. But uh, uh, the idea was instead of typing in software from magazines, they would print uh, the binary as a uh, sort of elaborate type of barcode, and you would buy this. Uh, handheld device and scan the page of the magazine and get your software that way. And uh, no forms of it really ever caught on, but uh, it was it was a cool idea. I, I think that this was made for the Apple II and the IBM PC, and they had plans to do more, and it just didn't happen um, because it didn't catch on. It, it is kind of a bulky plastic apparatus that you set on the desk and lay over this long barcode. Um, it reminds me a lot. Like it, it seems like a progenitor that the, the ill-fated QCAT, if you remember mm-hmm, that thing, mm-hmm. that was scanning barcodes, but what it was really doing was selling your information to advertisers. <laughs> um, and a much, much later, it, it, it sort of resembles kind of the modern day QR codes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it, I mean, it was a classic chicken and egg problem, right? The, nobody was buying the things cause there wasn't enough magazines with the software and the software, the magazines weren't running the software cause nobody had the thing. Uh, but I think if it had come along maybe five years sooner, I think it really could have been something because there was that early magazine period where people were typing in a lot of software for magazines and this thing would have been a lifesaver. But then it came out really late in that era and people were really just starting to buy things on floppy disks and, and so on by then and people were really not typing stuff in for magazines anymore anyway. So kind of missed its narrow window, I think, to, to become a thing. Right. So this article is by uh, Chris Osborne, and um, we'll obviously have all this in the show notes. And maybe one of the reasons that it didn't catch on was because the the, the thing about the barcodes is that they were pro- of a proprietary format. So um, nobody could license these things out and print their own software. You could you could enter your program in BASIC or assembly, and it would generate a barcode for you. But I think that was slow and, and didn't work very well. And what Chris did was go through and, and um, 
uh, I guess, decrypt it and break the code, so to speak. And now he's got an easy way to create his own barcodes that he can scan in on. looks like he's got his hooked up to a, an IBM PC. Uh, if you uh, have the chance, plug, plug, plug. I also, over on apple2scans.net, have a bunch of um, um, of the software and the manual scanned in uh, for the Apple II version, and you can check those out. Oh, cool. I didn't actually know that. We'll uh, make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And the, the, the catch is, unfortunately, the, the one that I got was complete and the disks weren't bad. So I was able to create the um, disk images of the, the software that you need. Otherwise, it's just a fancy plastic thing that sits there and does nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you can buy these things on eBay. I think they're not even that expensive, right? Because nobody knows what they're for or why you would want one. And <laughs> right. there's no way to use them anymore because the magazines weren't that popular. And right. <laughs> so it's just this sort of bizarre artifact, this plastic lump that... Yeah. And... Uh, when I got mine, and I, I don't know if this is a common thing or not, but um, I, I guess I don't know if they use cheap plastic or or whatever whatever material in the plastic has dried up. It's very um, fragile now and and brittle. So like if you touch this thing wrong, parts just like start snapping off of it. <laughs> so you got to be kind of careful with these because they're old and and yeah, because they weren't popular, it's sort of a curiosity more than anything else. Like what could have been. Yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can find the antic podcast there where they talked about the. Uh, they talked to one of the one of or the engineer who who yeah. developed mm-hmm. this thing, and it was really interesting. the The way they did the tracking uh, was really, really clever and really ahead of its time. There was apparently, I mean, I guess you wouldn't think about it, but it's there's a really difficult optical challenge there coming up with a lens system that can read this barcode and, and track it, and you know, in, ingest the data at whatever crazy, you know speeds and different kinds of paper and all these different problems. So uh, it's actually a pretty hard problem uh, and their solutions were clever. And in fact, uh, I think Chris talks about it a little bit. So he, um, he had found some of the PDF scans. I don't know if he, he is mine or, or somebody else's, but he tried to just print them out and scan and they wouldn't because mm. of, because of what you're talking about, the lensing mm-hmm. problems and you got to get the resolution just right. And if it, if it's, I mean, it's, it's very, you know, within these, uh, the confines um, um, of the parameters of this thing, if it slips outside at all, it doesn't work. So, Interesting stuff. All right, uh, moving right along, we've got some halt and catch fire news, which we haven't had for a little while. Uh, Mike, I don't watch the show anymore because I don't have cable, so you'll have to take this one for me. <laughs> oh, boo, boo. <laughs> okay, so uh, halt and catch fire has uh, metaphorically come out of the Commodore closet, so to speak. They are all Commodore all the time. C64 is everywhere. There's mentions of Petsky and, and Amiga and just disgusting. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. It's actually really awesome. Uh, but there's a, a fascinating article over on uh, fastcompany.com uh, where Tina Rowden, um, no, I'm sorry, Harry McCracken um, kind of took a backstage tour of the set and he goes through and he talks about all of the little stuff that you see kind of in the background. You might get a glimpse of like, what is that piece of equipment on the shelf? And uh, it's actually really intricate and the, the production company spends a lot of time making sure they get all of these little details right. Very cool. Yeah, I guess if you have to pick one actual retro brand from the period to commit to and actually say out loud on the air, uh, Commodore is <laughs> probably the only choice because it's kind of the only company that 
is definitely definitely dead <laughs> all, all the, sorry sorry Commodore. Um, but you know the rest of those companies all sort of still exist in some form or another for the most part at least somebody still owns the rights to them and you know i, I think there's some i don't know there's some dude in germany that bought all the commodore rights or whatever but uh i'm sure i'll get angry emails from commodore fans uh, having just got all those facts wrong but uh uh, I think, yeah, you could, certainly couldn't do that with Apple or Atari or, you know, those brands are still active and still uh, have armies of lawyers behind them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're not watching the show, you're, you're really missing out um, as a retro fan. I, I like the way that, especially in this season, it seems like this cast of characters and especially the company that, that, um, that uh, the young Cameron uh, set up with her business partner, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name, um, but um, it's really become sort of this, they've really become this blank slate on which they can tell a lot of different stories from that time period in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere and early in the computer revolution. So this year you have the Joe McMillan character, and but he's dressing like Steve Jobs now with the round <laughs> glasses and, and the, the, the tennis <laughs> shoes. But the story that they're telling with him is actually of uh, a John McAfee or McAfee, or however you pronounce mm. that. Um, and, and how kind of nuts he's gets. And, <laughs> um, and the, the Cameron story is, is, is about, you know, wrestling a, a control or keeping control over her co company as it grows and trying to find sort of um, how, you know, Silicon Valley startups have to go find funding and you don't want to get in bed with the wrong people and, and how difficult that can be. So they've, they've done a really great job of, of growing from the original story, which I think was about how Compaq cloned the IBM PC and, and they've moved into all these other areas and they've done so uh, pretty fluidly and seamlessly. I really, really like the show. Cool. All right. Well, if I recall, it's watchable online, right? Uh, eventually, like they, uh, yeah, on I think AMC's it shows up on website. yeah, and then eventually on Hulu and places like that. Yeah. So, all right, well, I look forward to eventually knowing what you're talking about. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, and good for you for cutting the cable, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I should have done it sooner. God, it's great. My cable <laughs> bill is a third of what it was, and I don't miss it one bit. All right, uh, Apple One news. Uh, we have uh, an interesting auction um, of sorts, just when we thought we were done with Apple One auctions. Uh, I, I'll let you talk about this one, Mike, but I, I will just say I predict uh, our listeners who read this article uh, will be angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Proceed, sir. Okay, after I talk about it, you're going to have to say why you're angry, but let's talk about this first. <laughs> so last month we talked about this, um, the the quote-unquote celebration Apple One, which was a prototype apparently that didn't doesn't look like any of the others and, and seems to be earlier and uses newer pieces, and it's pretty much a guarantee that this was, you know, before the bite shop and before anything else, which made it a lot more valuable, and they were expecting it to be auctioned for uh, more than a million dollars. Um, and they had uh, Corey Cohen, who we, we've mentioned a few times um, on the show now, he he actually uh, goes in, cleans these things up, verifies them, makes sure they're working before they go to auction. We need to have him on the show, by the way. Mm, um, yeah. But in the meantime, um, they were all expecting this to go for you know a million dollars or more, and sadly, it went for a paltry eight hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Yes, the bubble has burst, folks. But <laughs> uh, Fortune.com has an uh, article with the people who purchase this and and that's kind of unusual because normally there's the buyers are either you know they want to stay anonymous because they don't want people breaking into their house and trying to steal this thing or it ends up in like the henry ford museum places like that which is mm -hmm. great if you want to go see but you know um usually the people who buy them don't talk about it and in this case um in this case we get a look behind the curtains, I guess, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Glenn and Shannon Delamore, who co-founded um, a skincare line called Glam Glow, um, 
which was uh, bought by Estee Lauder for a lot, for millions and millions of dollars. Uh, they bought it and they gave an interview to uh, Fortune and there are a couple of other websites out there that have also talked to them. But it's an interesting article. These I don't think these individuals are really retro Apple fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, just to wrap up what you're saying, uh, yeah, I think it's safe to say that the bottom has fallen out of the Apple One auction market <laughs> because there were just nondescript Apple Ones, I think that didn't even work, that went for much more than this, you know, a year or so ago. So uh, the fact that this is like, you know, an original, possibly pre-prototype version fully verified, you know, the holy grail of Apple Ones and it didn't even crack, you know, 900K. That's that's actually quite surprising. And the couple themselves were planning to, like, they they put a last-minute bid in for $1.6 and they were thinking of going up as high as $2 million if, if, mm-hmm. wanted, if they had needed to to get this thing. So they really wanted it, and I guess good for them for not having to spend that much. And yeah, I guess they, they definitely scored. I mean, who knows if the prices on these will ever come back up. I mean, Steve Jobs is only going to die once, so I don't know if that <laughs> hype curve is ever going to come back the way it did. But uh, who knows? Maybe this thing will uh, continue to appreciate. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I think the reason our listeners uh, might be angered by this article is because, uh, you know, everyone gets to spend their money on whatever they want. No judgment here. But uh, you, it, the argument could be made. These people bought this Apple one for the wrong reasons. Uh, when they, when they, the, the interview, they talk about why they bought it. And uh, I guess for their uh, makeup company, they uh, had sort of idolized Apple as uh as a canonical example of how to create a strong, uh, high, uh, strong brand that uh, is really distinctive, and and they said that they looked a lot to Apple's packaging and their hardware designs, the level of polish that they put into their you know headphone packaging and all that sort of thing, and so f- for that reason they wanted the Apple One, and they talked a lot about how Steve Jobs had really created this you know uh, this modern idea of a powerful brand. Um, None of which has anything to do with the Apple computer that made this this Apple One, and no mention of Steve Wozniak, of course, and no understanding of you know what the Apple One was or what it represented, or or you know how different the company, the Apple Two or the Apple computer of the '80s was versus what it is now. So, uh, yeah, a weird sort of uh, cargo cult uh, kind of purchase. It seems like like they understand. Oh, this is the first thing Apple made. Ergo, we want it, but they don't understand. You know what they're actually buying here. So anyway, no, again, no judgment. It's their money. Spend it however they want. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Makes sense. Um, yeah. I always wonder about that sort of thing. You know, I get like the Henry Ford Museum wanting one of these because of its historical significance or, mm-hmm. or, you know, I know Waz, I think, held on to a couple of them because they meant something to him personally because he designed these things and sort of launched him into what he's become today. Um, but you see people like this that maybe – as far as like from where we're standing, maybe miss the point or at least are looking <laughs> for something else. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, I'll read every now and then you'll see um, somebody who buys a boxed Apple II for investment purposes. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I'm going to send my kids to college on this. And well, that just doesn't <laughs> – one, I, I, I think maybe you're uh, overestimating what this is going to be worth in a few years. But yeah. – um, so yeah, it, it, I do like the, the fact that this hobby has all kinds of people from all different walks of life and they, they, you know, why each of us come to the Apple II, we have our own reasons and our own motivations. And I, on the one hand, this sort of makes me a little sad, mm-hmm. but it's great that, um, I, I love being able to share these other perspectives and see, you know, why people love the Apple. Cause I know why I do, but that may be, may not be why you do or, or somebody else. So yeah. 
Yeah, maybe uh, you know, maybe these folks buying this Apple One will, you know, maybe it'll kindle an interest in learning more about what it actually was and and how you know the Apple of then is how it was different than the Apple of now and uh, what you know what that machine represented for you know the consumer computer industry and so on. Yeah, we'll uh, keep our fingers crossed. That that's <laughs> what happens. All right, moving right along. Uh, well, happy birthday, Apple Two GS. Uh, this is. Very exciting for me personally. Uh, as I posted on Twitter recently, the 2GS was uh, my third and uh, favorite computer that I've ever owned. So uh, I was very glad to see that it uh, turned 30 on the 15th of September, and it was acknowledged widely uh, throughout the retroverse. That was nice to see. Especially over at uh, what is the Apple 2GS uh, website. We've talked about that site plenty. Alex has got a couple of entries uh, on his uh, celebrations that, that he's put together. <laughs> There's a picture of a – I'm sorry, Alex, that cake is a little bit frightening. <laughs> it is. I was sort of terrified by that as well. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's the uncanny valley of your nightmares. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, but it does have a nice representation of the Apple 2GS uh, on it. And um, – um, it, yeah, it's really cool to see that these machines are still in use today and we're still learning a lot about them. But we'll talk a lot about that with, you know, the Protoss and, and other things, but, uh, in a few minutes. But, um, yeah, happy birthday to the 2GS. Yeah, yeah, I, I got to take this opportunity to shout out to Alex's site. Uh, you know, we talked to, to Kate earlier about, how, you know, you, it starts with that first Google uh, gets you sucked back into the Apple II community. And for me, that first Google uh, landed me on his site. And, oh, nice. you know, I was like, oh, man, the 2GS was so great. Does anyone ever care? Does anyone even remember that thing? And <laughs> I Googled it. I Googled something Apple IIGS related, landed on his site, and it just it exploded from there. So uh, so thanks, Alex, for that amazing repository of, of 2GS uh, stuff. Yeah, very awesome, Sue. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of the thing you just said, um, <laughs> I told myself I wasn't going to do any terrible segues this month. Ah, oh, you failed. Yeah, here we are 49 minutes in. I've already blown it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we did talk earlier in the intro about John Brooks uh, updating Protoss. And this has been this has been the talk of the retrosphere uh, and, in fact, has even made it uh, mainstream a little bit. Uh, Jason Scott uh, mentioned it. It came up on Hackaday. Uh, it came up on Boing Boing. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, this, this is great news. It's really making the rounds. Uh, so John Brooks, who, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about on the show and had on the show, um, has updated uh, Protoss 2.03 and uh, has named it uh, Protoss 2.4, which is in keeping with Apple's uh, official numbering scheme, which I liked for uh, uh, major version releases. And uh, he's added a whole ton of features to it. He's added compatibility for a bunch of new clones. He's added compatibility for earlier Apple IIs that got cut out somewhere around Protoss 2, I think. Uh, the 2 Pluses and earlier machines got cut out. Uh, he's added support for those back in. Uh, he's added a new uh, a new buy program that's much uh, much better. So, uh, yeah, it's it's really a great update. Yeah, so you'd mentioned the clones thing, and, and um, for anyone who had a clone back then, you might remember they they put in Apple put in a clone check, and if it failed that, your uh, Protoss would not boot on your machine for no other reason than it was than that it was a clone, and that was kind of unfortunate. And uh, as the machines moved over to the sixty five CO two um, and the enhancement kits for the 2E and things like that, the newer versions of Protoss stopped working on those old machines. So it's really great to see an across-the-line version that almost brings it up to the capabilities of, of Apple 3 Sauce, in fact. <laughs> you had to get that in there. <laughs> I did, I did. I, I was never a big user of, of Protoss, um, largely because it, it 
reminded me of sauce just enough to be frustrating. Oh, interesting. See, I was the opposite. Coming from DOS 3.3, I adored ProDOS. You know, it was, I found it so elegant. And honestly, I got hooked as soon as I found out I didn't have to type the entire word catalog. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, just that alone sold me. Uh, but then, yeah, the directory structures and uh, I just found it really elegant and nice uh, compared to DOS 3.3. But uh, so interestingly, until the news of this 2.4 broke, I didn't actually realize that ProDOS was incompatible with clones uh, because apparently one exception to that is the Laser 128 series, which is what I had in the in the 2E period. And uh, I used Protoss and loved it on my laser. So uh, apparently that was the one exception. But by and large, yeah, Protoss uh, did not work on clones. I believe laser was was one of the only, or maybe maybe the only official legally licensed clone maker, wasn't it? And I know Franklin and all these other ones eventually got themselves sued and and either went out of business or made clones that weren't really compatible anymore. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Uh, the ROMs were written by Central Point Software, and VTech acquired uh, them and in order to get this technology. And my understanding is that the, the ROMs are not copies. They are uh, sort of clean room reverse engineered, uh, but they were, as far as I know, 100% compatible. And I'm not sure if they had a license with Apple to do that or if they just, you know, much like the Compaq uh, did with the PC BIOS, if they just did a legal reverse engineer. I'm not sure which, but uh, for whatever reason, yeah, I honestly never found any incompatibility with uh, with my laser. And uh, yeah, Protoss uh, worked fine, and I was uh, uh, naively uh, oblivious <laughs> to the uh, supposed uh, incompatibilities. Okay. Well, uh, if you want the details of Laser and the history, their history with uh, Apple and VTech, uh, there's a nice write-up uh, over, of course, on um, on Steve Wark's uh, apple2history.org, and we'll have a link directly to that article in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Nice work, John. And uh, as, as mentioned earlier, John and I are currently working on figuring out why my Megabeep ROM is incompatible with Protoss <laughs> yeah, 2.4. Yeah, I want to hear all about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, um, I will also like to know what's, what's actually going on. <laughs> we'll figure it out. All right. Uh, well, it wouldn't be uh, an open Apple episode if we didn't talk about a whole crap load of new hardware. And uh, we have more of that this month. Uh, first up is the Manila Gear 2GS VGA adapter. Um, so this this thing's pretty cool. It's, uh, it's sort of a physical uh, connector adapter more than an actual like it's so I wouldn't call it like uh, Plumman's 2G, uh, 2C VGA adapter where it allows you to you know plug a VGA monitor directly into your 2C. Uh, this thing adapts the signals, but does not adapt the video timing. So it's uh, uh, so it's still uh, it's still a 15 kilohertz uh, signal coming out of uh, coming out of it, which some VGA monitors can sync to, especially older ones like the. There was this period in the PC market of maximum video standard uh, yeah. proliferation <laughs> and uh, sort of like in the mid 90s so if you can get a VGA <laughs> PC monitor from that era like the the neck multi-sync is a great example uh, the one with the little parrots in the corner um, I think it was or the, the ViewSonic anyway uh, there was some of those monitors that were really good at syncing f- on everything from like you know MCGA and Hercules all the way up to Super VGA and everything in between. So those monitors can, can do 15 kilohertz horizontal uh, video uh, and they would be quite happy to sync to this, I'm sure. But I'm sure, but if you went on Amazon and bought a $20 LCD VGA, it's probably not going to. So um, interesting device. Uh, it might help you solve some problems, uh, you know, if, uh, if you're trying to get your 2GS onto VGA. 
Well, and it's only 30 bucks, which I think is a lot cheaper than, than some of the other options that are out mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and it's nice compact design. Uh, the other thing this might help with is, uh, you know, there are uh, arcade video doublers, which are used for uh, connecting uh, arcade machine video, which is actually the same as 2GS video. It's uh, 15 kilohertz RGB video. And uh, there's basically two problems. There's the video uh, signal differences, the, uh, and then there's the video timing differences. So this... This Manila gear adapter solves one of those problems. And then you can buy these arcade video adapter boards that solve the other problems. So uh, the combination of those two uh, might might solve your problem because uh, arcade machine restorers have the same problem where they have, you know, they, they had arcade machines had these special RGB monitors uh, that were arcade monitors and they were specifically for arcade video and that they weren't just televisions or, or computer monitors. Uh, so if you're, you know, if those die, you have the same problem of trying to get video onto a, a regular VGA monitor. So anyway, that was a lot of talk, but uh, <laughs> hopefully this will help someone solve a problem and we will link to that in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what my obsession is with 2GS video. I talk about it a lot on every show. <laughs> well, until the problem is truly solved. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. People will continue to ask about it on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group. <laughs> we need to get out there and talk about the problem, people. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're raising awareness. Okay. Uh, let's talk Transwarp, Mike. Yeah, so Byte Boosters, uh, another uh, Apple II hardware maker that's uh, sprung up in the in the past year or so and has, has some great products, has announced that uh, they're now selling via eBay uh, a couple of their own enhancements to the Transwarp GS. The first is the uh, uh, high-speed 32K, what they call the dark cache board. It's the little cache board that goes on your Transwarp. Um, it comes, I think the standard one was 8K when they re- released it, and now we're up to 32K. And uh, they use um, this new one uses uh, fast SRAMs, uh, eight nanoseconds, which is uh, nice. Um, and looks like they're listing that one for forty-four dollars and forty-four cents uh, US. And the other thing that they're selling is the complete Gal IC replacement set. So, and it uses the same what they say is the same latest hardware revision in the high speed uh, from highest speed from Lattice at seven nanoseconds. And that's uh, thirty-nine ninety-nine also on eBay. Very cool. Boy, those are good prices. And that is some really, really fast RAM. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, eight nanoseconds, that's like back in the day, that was the propagation time of an OR gate. So, I mean, to have an entire RAM chip, eight nanoseconds. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, that's that uh, should should speed things up. And hopefully it'll you'll be able to reach some higher speeds and stay stable. Um, if you're lucky enough to have one of um, um, Henry Henry's... Uh, um, Transwarp clones that he made a while back. I, the, those things ran, I think, pretty stable at around 17 or 18 megahertz. I'm, I don't think you'll reach those speeds with this, but uh, if you're uh, j- until Henry releases more of those, um, this might have to suffice. Yeah, and if you're one of those folks who are experimenting with overclocking their Transwarps, this would certainly improve your odds of of success. I would think. Sure. Yeah, one one less uh, bottleneck in, in the system. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, all right. Uh, so we've talked a lot in the last couple of months about the four-play joystick card, and uh, it is now definitely available. Uh, I think there was some confusion about that last month, whether it was uh, whether you could exchange uh, money for it. And you definitely, in fact, now can. Uh, we'll link to Mr. Lugazi's uh, blog, where he has pictures of them, I believe. So he's offering them definitely in kit form. I think they're also for sale uh, assembled. I'm not 100% certain about that, but the photos show the kits that he's putting together. And uh, there's some nice backstory in there as well about the difficulties he's had sourcing uh, retro-looking ribbon cables and some of that kind of thing. But uh, uh, yeah, if you want to buy one, you can now buy one. So we will link to that in the show notes. That's great. Uh, All right. So this next item is 
uh, one of those one of those ones that I like because I can still never quite believe that it exists, <laughs> but I like that it does. So talk to me about remote desktop on my 2GS mic. Uh, it's possible, and actually it's been possible uh, for a little while now. Uh, I think we... Uh, now we talked about it when it was originally announced, um, a year or so ago, VNC view GS, uh, has now been updated to version 1.0. It goes 1.0, the golden master, something like that. Uh, <laughs> the update includes raw pixel decoding routines so that raw pixels can be decoded and displayed incrementally while receiving data. And there's now an added option to tune Marinetti for high speed throughput. And it's, and the best part about it is it's free and you can now VNC from your modern desktop to your 2GS. Very cool. Yeah, this uh, this is a this is a neat a neat tool or toy, I guess I'm trying to say. Um, you know, this reminds me a bit that uh, in the early Mac period, uh, a lot of us kept our GSs going uh, with Apple Talk because, of course, the GS uh, was one of the first machines to ever have Apple Talk, and it was kind of a, a strange thing. Like it was way ahead of its time on the GS, and then Apple clung to it for a really long time on the Mac. So there was a pretty long period of time when you could uh, very easily talk to your GS by setting up a standard Apple Talk network. And uh, it was sort of a really underappreciated feature, the 2GS, that that existed because nobody ever used it in the Apple II world. Uh, but uh, this is kind of reminds me of that. Like it's it's a way to it's a very painless way to to get a link to your to your 2GS from modern equipment. So if you're listening to this podcast, you almost certainly know uh, what ADT Pro is, Apple Disk Transfer Pro, and uh, it is the canonical way to get your uh, Apple II that you just bought on eBay running. Uh, if you don't have floppy disks, which you probably don't, uh, it's one of the top questions new newbies to the community ask is, hey, I have this Apple II, and people are sharing all these disk images on the internet. Uh, how do I get them from A to B? And ADT Pro is how you do that. You connect a serial cable or an audio cable or various other easy methods uh, between your modern machine and your Apple II. You push some buttons and ADT Pro moves the software over. And you can either just run it directly out of RAM or you can create new floppy disks uh, with that software. Cool stuff. Uh, so Michael Mulhern, uh, who is a Kansas Fest regular and uh, sort of our representative for the uh, Australians in the Apple, uh, Apple II community, has uh, sent us a link to a, a cool story about ADT Pro coming to the rescue to archive some software that would have otherwise been lost. And uh, it's sort of a, it's a fun kind of Saturday afternoon read. It uh, sort of tells the story of, a, of, of this person who was looking for some old Mac stuff and got sucked into some Apple II stuff and ended up landing uh, a giant pile of educational Australian software. And wow. so, so this educational software, that, as far as anyone can tell, only existed in Australia. So it's a real coup to sort of preserve this stuff. And uh, there's great screenshots in there. And uh, uh, he talks about his journey, sort of how the Apple II community helped him and walked him through the whole process of using ADT Pro and getting the software preserved. Uh, he reached out to... Um, uh, 4am at one point, which was amusing. Uh, 4am has sort of become the uh, uh, an outward reaching tentacle of the Apple II community. People <laughs> who aren't in the community have heard of him because he's made you know inroads into uh, mainstream media. So uh, it refers to him as the infamous archivist, which uh, I like that turn of phrase. Uh, I would set my Twitter status to that if I were him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's a good read and uh, I recommend it. All right. Well, uh, last month we had um, I, I we talked a lot, obviously, about Kansas Fest as we do, and I believe I forgot to mention that uh, Brian Weiser and John Leak of the Retro Leaky Leak. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Sorry, John. <laughs> um, not like he listens. Come on. <laughs> 
um, John and, and Brian, uh, Brian of Call Apple interviewed uh, the keynote speaker, Mike Harvey, and, and they posted that. The text of that is over at Call Apple, and you can listen to the whole thing on Retro MacCast episode 413. And here's a little bit of that now. I had this old damn tape cassette for storing things. Boy, that's just the absolute <laughs> worst. Um, but I programmed some things, and then I stumbled across the Apple. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend. He described the Apple. So, so, so what, about what year do you think this is? This was probably 1979. Okay. So would this have been the Apple II Apple or II. the Apple II Plus? The Apple II. Okay. Um, so where can I buy one? He told me this little hole-in-the-wall electronic store down in the heart of Dallas. I went down. They had one in the back room. I bought it on the spot. Brought it home, put the TRS-80 in the closet, never went back to that. <laughs> and so I started started uh, in really learning the Apple. At that time, the only thing it had was uh, tape cassettes. Mm-hmm. But very shortly after that, it came out with a diskette, a disk drive. And when that came out, I thought, man, I'm in heaven. So by that time, I learned how, a little bit how about how to program the disk, I was bringing forward some of the training I'd had from IBM, and I had a pretty good idea uh, what I wanted in a word processor. I'd been involved in <clears throat> evaluating word processing for Xerox when I was with Xerox. As a matter of fact, I led the team in Xerox that uh, wound up acquiring Diablo Systems. You ever? You, I'm not familiar well, with that. Yeah, Diablo Systems back in the late it was the late seventies. Invented a daisy wheel printer. Yeah, yeah, I remember sure, those. Sure. Yeah. Daisy yep. wheel printer. Yep. It was a patented thing. I headed up the team that went and acquired Diablo Systems for Xerox. Okay. And as Xerox started selling word processors based on that printer. So anyway, I learned enough about word processing to know the things I wanted, and started started building my own, and then printing them out on a Centronics Impact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so you, you mentioned in there your, your time at at Xerox, uh, the Palo Alto. Um, yeah. So, and I I think you'd said or I'd read that uh, you'd actually seen a demonstration from LNK with the mouse and so forth. And did can you talk a little bit about uh, yeah, that? Let me and, back up a little bit. Uh, sure. In the mid seventies. All right. And if you want to hear the whole thing again, that's on Retro MacCast episode 413. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up here because I forgot to mention it. And it's a really great interview. So you should check that out. Excellent. I think John does listen to the show, but only over Apple Talk from his old Macs. <laughs> right. Yes. From his, uh, what is it? The Banana Junior? Is that what it's called? <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, speaking of Kansas Fest, as you mentioned, as we do, we uh, one of the uh, big splashes of the show this year was uh, Jeremy Rand's uh, sort of now becoming annual tradition of porting an awesome, popular, casual, uh, modern game to the Apple II. And this year he bit off Bejeweled and did an excellent job of it in uh, Double Low Res. Uh, Double Low Res is kind of the uh, the darling of the <laughs> Apple II community these days. I think uh, I think Dagan Brock gets kick, uh, gets credit for starting that with uh, Flapplebird. Uh, everyone's been all <laughs> in love with Double Low Res lately. Um, it's a, a video mode that nobody used for 25 years and has probably gotten more use in the last year and a half than it ever did. 
But uh, anyway, so Jeremy has been continuously updating Bejeweled since KFest. It was sort of, he, he launched it there. Uh, it was his cat, uh, his Hackfest entry, which I believe he earned second place for, uh, well-deserved. And uh, he has continued to develop it, and he's added mouse support. And now recently he has added uh, Mockingboard support. So uh, very cool stuff. He's uh, continued to improve the animations and, and all that sort of thing as well. Uh, so definitely worth a look. Yeah, the Apple II graphics, you know, were kind of the laughing stock of the, <laughs> of the, the micro community back mm-hmm. back in the '80s. So I figure if you're going to go bad, go really bad. <laughs> I uh, I do have a there, there's a little um, personal or professional maybe envy uh, of his success with this because I I tried Bejeweled uh, Hackfest at a Hackfest a number of years ago and failed utterly to to get <laughs> anywhere near finish. So congratulations, it's awesome to see that working. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun to play. It's a great implementation for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, getting newfound access to old stuff, um, New Shrinkit X has been uh, rewritten, it sounds like. So New Shrinkit X is uh, a cool utility for uh, cracking open Shrinkit archives, which, uh, as many of us know, was the uh, kind of compression tool of choice for a while there, and especially in, you know, in the later BBSs and so on in the uh, Z modem days. Um, so uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's rewritten it in uh, Swift and uh, there's some screenshots of it and so on here. Yeah, I wrote, rewrote it in Swift and, and uh, Objective-C with, storyboarding providing, with a storyboard providing the UI. Um, this runs, uh, requires Mac OS 10.10, I'm sorry, Mac OS, okay, is it OS X or is it OS 10? I never know how <laughs> so, to pronounce that. So, so OS X 10.10, is that correct? Uh, officially, it is. you are supposed to say uh, Mac OS 10. Uh, you are supposed to say 10, not X, but uh, everybody... So Mac OS 10, 10.10. <laughs> It's a lot of tens there. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Everybody says X, but uh, Apple has actually had written documents saying you're not supposed to do that. But I'm actually looking forward to the rebranding. I know a lot of people are upset about the MacOS uh, thing that's coming with Sierra, mm-hmm. but um, I'm kind of happy not to have to like try to remember that anymore. Uh, at, at any rate, um, this is uh, the original program was built um, using Andy Fadden's new FX library, and it Looks like it looks like it um, has some basic operations. You can drag and drop files and folders uh, for an archive uh, managed by uh, OS X's Finder, <laughs> and um, uh, back and forth. And there's internal drag and drops, and and uh, a lot of really neat ways to manipulate your uh, disk images on on your Mac. It's still, I don't think, close to what you get with. Um, uh, I've been off Windows so long. What's the name of that? Um, Cider Press. Cider Press, yeah. It. yeah it's, it's not close to Cider Press as far as complete functionality all in one package, but it's still a pretty awesome tool. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Cider Press because I actually just recently started using that. Mm. Um, you had, you'd mentioned a bunch of times on the show here that Cider Press runs just fine on Macs uh, under Wine, and mm-hmm. uh, I had never used Wine before, so ah. uh, I gave that a shot. I, I installed Wine, and I installed Cider Press, and it was actually really really easy and it works perfectly so yeah that's uh, great yeah I, I should have been doing that i've been fighting with apple commander on the command line <laughs> for years <laughs> and uh, yeah cider press under wine just works perfectly so i recommend it, anyone try that not that there's anything wrong with the command line <laughs> no for sure and you know an apple commander is still essential to my workflow for uh development because it is command line which is really really nice for automated build flows but uh, uh but yeah for just sort of gooey manipulation of disk images uh cider press awesome Sure. So now, uh, boy, 
Uh, now we have um, what is what was fest is and <laughs> is not because you and I, or specifically I, get this wrong every time. Was yeah. fest is not Oz K fest. They are two different things, <laughs> and uh, Euro Plus would like you to know that. In fact, there's a, a post uh, on Compsys Apple II as well as <laughs> an email that we received. Uh, letting us know the difference. Um, so mainly there, there's even a handy little comparison char- chart that, that they've set up. So the, the attributes are things like frequency, static addressing, formal program of events, length, pizza, chaotic nature, <laughs> and, and then there's some comparison chart notes. But WASFest happens, uh, several times a year, whereas OzKFest is every one to three years. Um, and there's OzKFest has does have a formal length, whereas WazFest, I think, just kind of whatever they feel like doing. Anyway, they are definitely two different programs, and we apologize again for getting that wrong. <laughs> yes, uh, we we got much much email about that, uh, <laughs> and uh, well well deserved because uh, I believe I also spent uh, at least forty five seconds or so saying all lies about. Uh, what WASFest is in our last show. And uh, I'm sure all of uh, the Australian Appleseed community was cringing and yelling at their uh, iPods during that entire segment. So we apologize for that. And once again, our research department has been round up and shot. Okay. Uh, So yes, apologies to our Australian uh, friends and listeners. Moving right along. So this is kind of a cool thing. Uh, This is sort of a uh, everything that's old is new again item. Uh, This is a DOS 3.3 patch that allows booting from the external 2C drive. So, uh, Mike, you want me to give some technical background on this one? Sure. Uh, just real quick, uh, with all the uh, the news about uh, ProDOS, it's nice to see that DOS 3.3 is still getting some love. Go ahead, Quinn. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Carrington is is getting a warm glow right now. <laughs> one of the last DOS 3.3 holdouts. Uh, so let's see. So the, the deal here is that the very first 2C, the ROM 255 2C, uh, had the ability to sort of sort of boot from the external floppy drive. Not in the way that the 2C Plus does, where you just put it in, turn it on, and it boots from the external drive if the internal drive is empty. does not do that. But uh, from a command line, uh, you can uh, type PR number 7 uh, unintuitively, and that would boot the external uh, floppy drive on uh, an original ROM 255 2C. Uh, they took that ability out in later ROM versions, so there was really no way to boot from the external uh, drive, which was a problem for DOS 3.3. So you kind of lost the ability to boot a lot of uh, 3.3 disks uh, in that way. So uh, people, though, figured out that uh, the old, the code that was in the 255 ROM to do this uh, still works on later 2Cs. They just took the code out of the ROM. So uh, there's this little, like, I think it's like a 12-byte uh, patch that you can grab and you can just type that into the monitor and uh, execute it and then PR number 7 starts working again in the same way that it used to. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, what this is is a patch to DOS 3.3 uh, that uh, allows you to uh, boot those disks from the external drive. So in, in other words, not just ProDOS disks, but if you do the PR number 7 trick, uh, that will still work with uh, DOS 3.3. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of convoluted, uh, it's sort of an edge case, but, uh, uh, stuff like this does become more relevant nowadays, I think, because, you know, we're all using, uh, flash storage devices on our Apple IIs. So, you know, there's, 
which is often a problem for the two C's because most things need to be booted and uh, as though they're the only thing in the floppy drive and not living on some uh, flash device, but the flash device is always you're often plugged in as some sort of external or secondary uh, floppy device. So uh, yeah, solutions like this uh, have new life. In the thread uh, on Compsys Apple II, there's actually um, uh, a mention of how this will, if you have the SD uh, Floppy 2 physical drive emulator from a2heaven.com, this patch will definitely help you out. Good stuff. All right, uh, Mike, uh, I'm, you're going to have to do this next one. I don't know what you're going on about. <laughs> Quinn, this is all your fault. <laughs> Probably, so, but go on. <laughs> Chris Zuars, who we mentioned, I think, before on the show, uh, is a bit of a hardware hack and enjoys that sort of thing, has decided to clone an Apple III. And he did that because he saw you uh, – he, he followed along with your um, uh, Veronica project and – and figured that that if he could if you could do that then he could do this with the Apple III, uh, so I blame you squarely for this, <laughs> Quinn. Now, of course, uh, there were a couple of people that chimed in immediately and said this is the the most complex and advanced Apple eight bit Apple that was ever created. So you might you might be getting yourself into something here. But if you want to do it, uh, go for it. So uh, he's and his final post so far is challenge accepted. So, uh, that would be like totally awesome if he actually pulls it off, and if he does, well. well Torches and pitchforks headed to Quinn's door. <laughs> yeah, good on you, Chris. Um, yeah, it uh, it sounds like he had a, a dead uh, Apple III board, so he uh, and it I guess wasn't repairable or anything. So he thought, well, I'll just take the chips off it and make kind of a homebrew machine with the chips. And I think that's a fantastic idea, honestly. I really, really like this. Uh, what I would probably suggest is ra- I wouldn't try to clone the Apple III specifically because, yeah, as uh, you know, you've talked a lot about on Drop 3 Inches and, and here as well, despite my best efforts to get you to stop. <laughs> Not going to uh, happen. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the Apple III is obscenely complicated and a very strange beast. Um, and there's probably few people alive today that even have the knowledge to properly clone it just because it, not a lot of documentation survived and not a lot was ever known about it in the first place. So uh, that, yeah, that's definitely a, a tricky thing. But I think that you could take those chips, the 6502 and the basic ROM and things uh, from that machine and build a really cool homebrew machine out of it. It wouldn't be an Apple III per se, but you know, would boot uh, a 6502 and have the video chip and have you know, the, uh, all of the ROM routines for, for use, you know, in your own, uh, homebrew OS or whatever. So I think that's a fantastic project. Um, I almost wish I thought of it. <laughs> in fact, uh, one of the, uh, replies posted to Chris's initial announcement were that, um, um, they were talking about the, uh, the Apple three reference manual. It's like 780 pages long or something like that. And in the manual itself, it says there's a quote that says the Apple three is not an easy machine to understand. It has been designed to emulate the Apple two and has done many operations, uh, has done many operations in a different manner while adding many enhancements, which contribute to its complexity. So good luck to you, sir. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an interesting sort of little message right in the documentation there, maybe a message to Apple two users who were expecting some equivalent to the red book that just laid out the whole machine, uh, bare and they could do whatever they want with it. Uh, but the Apple III was not that way. Yep. All right. Uh, moving along, we got some Steve Jobs news here. What's wrong? You snuck this in on me, Mike. What's this I news did. item? <laughs> yeah, this is not necessarily Apple II specific, but I thought it was Ooh. sort of interesting. Uh, so uh, September 16th marks the anniversary both of Jobs leaving Apple in 1985 and returning to Apple <laughs> uh, 20 or 30-some years later. Um, so... Yeah, 1997, quite a gap there, but um, 
two, I think, very important dates in Apple history. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's dead now anyway. <laughs> Screw oh. him. <laughs> okay. Too soon? Well, I don't know. <laughs> when are we allowed to make Steve Jobs jokes? I don't even know. <laughs> am, am I a monster? <sighs> Sorry, folks. Ah, let's uh, let's do some eBay while we still have some listeners left. <laughs> All right. Look, rare. Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay. Okay, um, Gwen, as you like to point out every uh, every month, we don't we don't talk about eBay uh, on, exactly on this podcast, and so we're going to talk about an eBay item. Uh, this is an early 1977 Apple II Revision Zero with a white um, ceramic 6502 processor, um, and we do see these every now and then show up. This is um, um, serial number 1144. So earlier on in the run there, um, it looks like it's in beautiful condition cosmetically. It's uh, got all kinds of um, uh, documentation and everything. Unfortunately, it's going to cost you thirty grand. Oof. So, yeah, I, I, good luck to to. Um, in fact, this is the guy. Um, I forget what his name is. Um, he lives in Hong Kong and he makes uh, Apple One replica boards. So he's in, involved at least on some level in the community. So I'm not really sure why he thinks he's going to get 30 grand for this. Hmm, yeah. Um, especially since I, I've seen him active on Apple Fritter. And if you go into the Apple Fritter, Apple II forum, there's a, there's a, a thread of nothing but like ridiculously overpriced Apple II gear <laughs> that shows up on eBay. So I'm not sure what the thinking there is, but if you want to see some beautiful pictures of a, of a, an early Apple II in great condition, they're there for you. Hmm. Yeah, I think this this might be some uh, some market engineering going on here. Uh, there's this thing that people do in antiques markets and other places where you just list things for really high prices for a long period of time, knowing that they're not going to sell. And then it creates this sort of record that that's what these things are worth because that's what they've been listed for for years. And then people start paying those prices at some point and then... You know, huzzah, you've created this uh, market for expensive things that didn't used to be expensive. <laughs> uh, so that might be what's going on with all these Rev Zero Apple IIs. Because, yeah, they, we've never really seen any sell for more than like a thousand bucks. But people keep listing them for five figures. So, uh, Well, there were there were two that sold a couple of years ago. One was like sold for 25K and the, mm. and the one right after that sold for 24K, $9.99. Hmm. Um, but other than those two, I haven't seen anything close to to that or certainly not what he's asking now the board number does match the serial number on the the case it's 1437 on the on the board and that gap is because of the the uh, caseless boards that they sold briefly um and it, it hmm, there so the power supply is sort of an interesting thing it it has the right the sticker on it has the a2m001 and it's 1466 is a serial number but it looks like it's the brass Hmm. power supply rather than the silver one it does have the switch on the back so i'm not sure maybe it's just the lighting that's making it not look silver it should be a silver case not a not a brass one but i'm not sure what happened there well, i always wonder with these you know since you mentioned the power supply is it more valuable to have all the original components inside that power supply or is it more valuable to have something that will continue to work and be safe because you know these power supplies are going to eat themselves alive when all the capacitors burst and so on inside them so 
which is which do people want? Do they want a perfectly preserved artifact uh, at this price range, or would they rather have something that isn't going to eat itself alive in the next twenty years? Well, I imagine this is if you're paying thirty k for something like this, you're not looking to use it. It's yeah. you're looking to collect it and maybe show it off. I think you know we talked earlier about the different kinds of collectors and, and why people buy what they do, uh, like with the Apple One. And mm. I think this is maybe another case of that where I know that people who collect and, and use these earlier Apple IIs, what I've seen is they'll, they'll um, they you know, they want the original power supply, but then they'll pull that and put it on a shelf mm. and put a newer one in there and use it. And then if they're going to show it off at a show or something, then the original parts go back into it. Yeah, I feel like power electronics are a little bit of a different case, though, because it's sort of like art that self-destructs. So, I mean, it's 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 sort of dangerous to keep some of those original parts in there, even if your goal is to never use it and just preserve it. Uh, you know, it's it's a time bomb in a sense. I guess not seriously. It's going to eat the PCB alive inside the case. Maybe no one would ever notice that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I find it interesting. I guess it's sort of like a painting where the like the paint is all flaking off. Like, do you try to arrest that decay or do you just leave it alone because it's original and then for however long it lives is how long it lives? Yeah, I think that's that's part of a much larger argument that if you if you read magazines about museums or you go to, to discussion boards where people who work at museums contribute a lot, you see discussions about uh, at what point are we, at what point, how much patina do we want to leave on whatever this item is? I mean, we pull it out of the ground, do we leave the dirt on it? Mm-hmm. Or do we clean it up completely? Do we leave a little bit of dirt on it? Um, and again, it depends on, I think, what you want people to see and what your plans for are it. Um, what your plans for it are. Um, I, I think that these early uh, Apple II power supplies are riveted shut, so you're kind of looking at a challenge to get mm. it open anyway. Um, but if you know, if it were me, um, I think probably I'd open it up and at least recap it, and then seal it. And if I were going to use it, then maybe find a newer one anyway and just put this old one on the shelf. Yeah, if the power supplies are riveted shut, I can definitely see the argument for leaving it alone, even though it is going to self-destruct, because then you know, because then you're destructively modifying it then to get it open. So I yep. can, I can see that quite a quandary yeah all right uh well uh, i guess we'll wish them the best of luck on that auction um shall we move on to some feedback oh we'd like to talk to you if you buy that yeah yes definitely (laughs) okay let's do some feedback all right you've listened to us talk now it's time to tell us what you think So it's been a while since we uh, fed back to our listeners. So uh, it's uh, is that is that what that means? I don't. <laughs> that was a weird turn of phrase. Um, we'll just move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, we have lots of uh, lots of email to catch up on. Let's just say that. Uh, all right. Uh, so going back a ways here, we've got an email from listener Jay who says, uh, "Oh, so he's referring to our uh, interview with uh, Hubert Albers of Soundsmith fame," and. Uh, yeah, so one of the we talked a little bit about the differences between uh, noise tracker and Soundsmith, and uh, uh, Jay helpfully points out the key thing that we got wrong there, which is that uh, the key difference with noise tracker was that it allowed you to have uh, a package, an instrument package that was larger than the Ensonics 64K uh, uh, onboard RAM. So uh, that was really the key. Soundsmith, all of the instruments had to fit in 64K, whereas noise tracker could swap them out. Uh, during during playback, so that's uh, that's that's really cool. Yeah, and uh, apparently uh, 
there was so the Nsonic was sort of famous in, in the 2GS world for having this uh, annoying tick, uh, this sort of audio artifact, and uh, that was actually caused by modifying the uh, DOC RAM while songs were playing. So uh, that's actually the cause of that. Apparently, there was just no way around that, and it drove demo writers mad <laughs> trying to get rid of it. Um, so uh, yeah, that's actually what caused that. If you sw- try to swap instruments in and out during during playback, so. Um, Oh, but apparently he says later GS uh, mod players, such as uh, one called Shellplay, which I'm actually not familiar with, uh, had a clever way of swapping the samples that apparently got around that. So apparently there was a way. Um, We'll have to look more into that. If anyone knows more about that, please uh, let us know. Uh, So... Uh, let's see. Thanks for the great work podcast. All right. <laughs> Thanks for writing in Jay with those technical details about noise tracker. Much appreciated. Uh, moving right along. We got, uh, an email from listener Oscar, uh, all the way from Switzerland. And he writes in to let us know that, uh, the vintage computer festival, Switzerland will be happening again this year in Zurich. And that's November 19 and 20. Uh, The Apple II will be represented, he says, but uh, they would love to find more expert local Apple II exhibitors to give the machine the acreage that it deserves. So, uh, yeah, if you are a listener anywhere near Switzerland and you can get to Zurich for the 19th and 20th, you should go there and bring your equipment. Uh, Antoine and Olivier's, I think that might be. (laughs) Yes. So uh, he's got a link here to all the uh, exhibits and presentation uh, information, and we will link to that in the show notes. And next, I've got one from Les Harris, uh, who writes in to uh, say, oh, he writes in to thank me for uh, WeGUI, uh, my recent uh, 80 column mouse text based GUI system for uh, Apple II's, runs under ProDOS. And uh, he uh, writes in to say he's been working on a project to build a sort of uh, standard lib like uh, C runtime environments have uh, on, on modern machines that runs uh, under Protoss. So he's been inspired by the community to build something along those lines. Uh, and he's been working on it. Uh, and he's got a link here to his GitHub. So we will share that in the show notes. Looks like great work. So thanks for sharing that, Les. And you should come to KFest and show us all in person. Definitely. Uh, all right. Uh, next one here. Go through my email box. Um, oh yeah. So uh, I think a couple of months ago we talked to we talked about an email from listener Brian. He wanted to take the video signal from his Apple II and convert it to uh, amber or green. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and I think uh, I think we must we misunderstood his question a little bit. Um, we were saying how you know oh, just plug in an amber monitor and it's amber. <laughs> Um, so what he actually wants is to be able to take it to uh, plug it into a modern or uh, uh, sort of any kind of uh, modern or color composite monitor, but have it appear amber or green. So he wants some kind of box that will sort of let him control how it's displayed. I guess sort of like like the color killer switches that like the laser had or things like that, where you it was plugged into a color monitor but would still show in black and white, uh, which was great for things like Geos, where the color fringe would render the screen hard to read mm-hmm. um but he so he wants that but for green and a greener amber so uh i'm not sure uh how you how you would do that uh the closest thing i can think of is i think which we probably mentioned last time is plumman's uh 2c vga uh you can plug that into any color vga monitor and it has a button that will render uh the image in amber or green uh which is very cool 
Um, I don't know how you would do that with any sort of generic composite signal. Uh, maybe there's a device out there that can do that, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Apparently some monitors can do it, like the Commodore 1084 monitor, which is uh, quite a popular retro monitor, very powerful uh, range of signals that it will do, and it's a really nice monitor. Um, apparently that uh, does it. Uh, it has a switch for controlling that. Um, but uh, otherwise, yeah, he's looking for uh, like a box that will do this. So if anyone knows anything, let us know. Um, this may not be exactly what you want, and I don't know if we mentioned it last time we talked, but the Apple Color Monitor 100 is a, a digital XRGB monitor that it was built to work out of the box with the Apple III, but with the right card for the Apple IIe, uh, you can you can plug it in and get a digital signal out, and there's a button on that that allows you to switch from color to green. It doesn't do amber, um, but maybe that's closer. And, and granted, those monitors are really hard to find, and, and so are the cards, but Maybe that's something, if you can't find any other solution, maybe you could look on eBay or something. Could be uh, an interesting adventure there. That's uh, that's uh, uh, There's lots of sort of interesting problems in uh, Apple II video, but that's one that uh, I have not heard before. So Yeah, let us let us know uh, what, your, what your progress is on that. Yeah, for sure. All right, so uh, a few months ago, we talked about uh, Gumball and the uh, amazing <laughs> sort of now infamous write-up that 4AM did on the copy protection uh, in Gumball. And a lot of us were just really flabbergasted by the complexity and depth of that copy protection and why someone would do that for, you know, what was a, a big game for the time, but, you know, arguably maybe didn't warrant quite that level of uh, NSA-esque uh, copy protection. Uh, so uh, we were wondering if there was a story there. And uh, amazingly, uh, this is the Apple II community in a nutshell, uh, we got an email uh, from the author of, the, of that copy protection or <laughs> co-author of that copy protection system, uh, Roland, Gust Roland Gustafson himself. So uh, I hope I get all the details here right, Roland. Uh, I did some uh, research uh, with 4AM and a couple of other sources. But uh, apparently Roland uh, was involved in writing custom uh, operating systems for games, uh, for uh, various so various sorts of games. If you look him up on Moby Games, which we can link to, he's got a whole bunch of credits for different uh, Apple II games uh, where he's written custom operating systems for them. And as part of that, he was deeply involved in the copy protection of them. So uh, he wrote us to say, uh, howdy, uh, Robert, uh, referring to the uh, author, uh, primary author of Gumball, the gameplay itself. Uh, howdy, Robert, I, Robert and I added tons of copy protection to Gumball because we were, uh, or possibly still are, insatiably irrational and silly at times. It was like a feedback loop trying to outdo each other with silliness. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, simple uh, engineer mirth, I think, is uh, and whimsy is the reason that uh, the copy protection is so insane on Gumball. Best um, reason. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that uh, 4AM let me know is uh, uh, one of the particular one of the specific examples of, of Roland's work there was that uh, there was a uh, particular interrupt flag that had to be set during the level load routines, and it was just kind of a, a sneaky way to set a flag and. Uh, if that flag wasn't properly set, then uh, the the gameplay would sort of be degraded on the next level, so to the point of sort of being unplayable. So uh, like the gates wouldn't open any anymore, balls would pass through gates that were closed, bins wouldn't move more than a couple pixels at a time, uh, ball, the gumballs would fall through solid objects, so things like that. Uh, so basically the game sort of, rather than just not running or something, it just sort of became unplayable. And I really, really love this. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about this item um, because, uh, you know, uh, there were a few games that did this sort of degraded the gameplay rather than sort of tipping 
their hand that we know you've copied this or, or tried to, to crack this. Uh, this is a problem that we face in uh, modern uh, mobile games, which is the industry I'm in now. And it's a big problem because these games are, are really massively uh, social. So, uh, you know, it's one thing if you want to crack your own personal copy of some game and cheat in it and do whatever you want. But if you do that in a, you know, a massively social game with hundreds of millions of players that are competing in tournaments and leaderboards and things uh, you know, you're ruining everyone else's experience by cheating. So uh, it's it's not enough to sort of accept it. We have to, we really do have to stop it. Uh, otherwise, these cheaters will, you know, destroy all the leaderboards and all the tournaments and everything that for people that are paying money and trying to have fun. So, uh, you know, people do this with jailbroken devices and they uh, use memory editors uh, and so on to find the currencies and so on and manipulate their scores. Um, so we do a lot of basic security precautions uh, in the apps to prevent that. But ultimately, that's uh, much like copy protection on the Apple II was. It's, it's you know, if you choose to pick that fight, you're signing up for a cat and mouse game that will never end. Uh, so we need a kind of a better way. And the trick that most companies are using nowadays is what we sort of call cheater island. So... <laughs> Knowing that we can't prevent people from cheating, uh, but it is fairly easy to detect the cheating. Uh, you know, there's lots of ways I can't talk about, but um, things like you know the transaction uh, transaction signatures on your currencies and all there's all sorts of uh, client and server ways to detect uh, the cheating. It's very easy to detect when people are doing it. Uh, if we just detected those people and then just banned them, uh, of course, they would instantly just create a new account uh, and do it again, right? So that's, you, you can't sure. win doing that. So what we have to do is, what we do actually is without, without telling them, we move them to a different server, uh, with, <laughs> with all the other cheaters. And so they all, oh, wow. so that, so that server has a leaderboard with ridiculous, you know, negative numbers and it's all riddled with, you know, craziness and, and they love it, you know, cause they can keep doing what they want to do. They want to enjoy the game by cheating in it or hacking it or whatever. Uh, so they, they get to keep doing that. Uh, and they're unaware that we know that they know that they're cheating. So, well, I guess now they know cause I just said it, but, uh, <laughs> but generally speaking, if you're cheating in a mobile game right now, uh, we know. And so the best thing we can do is, uh, move you off to the side where you can't hurt anybody, uh, without telling you and let you keep doing it. Uh, and that's win-win. So the, you know, the, mainstream leaderboards and tournaments and so on uh, still work cor correctly and you still have your fun and are none the wiser and everybody wins. So that's that's how we currently solve that problem. And I just, I love the parallel because that's very much what this is like. You know, you would, I, you know, I know that there were games where if it detected it was cracked, the later levels would just get really, really, really hard, like unplayably hard. And that was another way to kind of, you know, acknowledge that, you, you know, that you've cracked the game without actually uh, letting you know so that you just try to crack it better next time. <laughs> uh, people would just not play the cracked versions because they, they seemingly sucked, you know. So I like that. Uh, I remember on the PC a number of years ago, there was this uh, first person shooter that came out. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me right now, but uh, the, the makers of it, when it came out, they touted, uh, we have this new copy protection system that, um, you know, you can copy it all you want, but like the further you get into the game, the harder it is to aim and to run and your vehicles will crash and things like that. And I made a big deal about talking about it. And, uh, one, uh, one of the pirate groups at the time did a, a, an analysis of the code and found that there actually wasn't any protection like that at all in the game. <laughs> it, it was the whole thing was a scare tactic, you know, to keep people, like you said, from scaring them away from playing the crack copies. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, there's an article on makeuseof.com from, uh, 2014. It's called the, uh, 
the five strangest uh, five strange video game copy protection measures used in history. And it's not there's nothing about Apple II there, but like there's the Nintendo logo that's used it as a key um, because it's um, etched into the back of the disc. And and um, uh, the most um, interesting one that they list here was one called a lens lock, where you hold this like this magnifying glass up in front of the screen to get the information that you need to play the game. And, um, but it's a, it's a fun little article. It doesn't, doesn't take but a few minutes to read and we'll have that in the show notes. But yeah, this, this sort of back and forth war that goes on between the, the makers and the pirates fascinates me. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, wasn't elite one of the games that was protected with that lens lock thing. May may have been. Yeah, yeah, I only ever had the crack of it, but I remember there was. I thought I remember reading that there, uh, you needed this lens lock thing. Anyway, all right. So, uh, so yeah, thanks, Roland, for uh, writing uh, writing in, and uh, that's someone else we should probably get on the show. <laughs> okay, moving right along, we've got uh, an email from listener David who uh, sent us quite a nice long email. Um, says many nice things about the show. Thank you very much for that, David. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead to kind of the meat of his uh, email here. He's got a question to which he does not know the answer, and I don't either. So maybe you, Mike, do or some of our listeners do. Uh, David writes, I have a question that I do not know the answer to. I have an early Apple IIc ROM 255 with oscillator package fitted for serial port 2 that has a patch of the PCB in the lower left-hand side with a number of resistors and a 555 timer IC that is not fitted. On some Apple IIc motherboard photos on the internet, this area is populated with components. Others do not have them fitted. Do either of you know what the circuitry's purpose was? Uh, Later memory expansion motherboards do not have this area at all as the PCB was redesigned. Uh, I have no idea. Um, The only 555 timers I was aware of were for the game port. So um, this is something I know nothing about. Mike, have you heard of this? Maybe it's elaborate copy protection. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure someone out there, uh, possibly uh, named Tony Diaz, uh, (laughs) uh, would know that. So yeah, let us know. Uh, Oh, and he sends a, a picture from Australia of a type of cookie called donkeys so (laughs) (laughs) oh i want one of those (laughs) yeah thank you very much for that it looks like it's a cookie that comes with a tray of chocolate to uh dip in uh and uh yeah they're they're called donkeys so thank you very much for that uh you're going to be sued soon for your last name (laughs) uh no i just someone someone sent me these things i think i think i need to own some donkey cookies All right, moving right along. Uh, Listener John writes in to ask, uh, Hey guys, listening to your great podcast now. Thanks very much. Any chance you guys might cover the current status of the 2GS Transwarp clone? Well, I assume you're referring to the Reactive Micro Transwarp clone. And uh, there were some prototypes made, right, Mike? But it hasn't been available for sale as of yet. Is that correct? Yeah, there were, I think, probably no more than 10 of them that were made. Uh, sent out. Um, I think it was part of partly uh, proof of concept that this could be done, and and partly to gauge interest. I know that the whole process was pretty expensive because they had to sand down some boards, and there's a lot of gals that needed to be cracked and things like that. Um, and I think the idea is that they're planned for the future. I, I know that they've restarted their store and they're selling some hardware, and that the funds some of the funds that they're making from the hardware that they're selling are going to eventually be put back into this um, project. I do know that they um, are still planning to do this at some point, but there's no schedule for when we might see those, unfortunately. And, and it's kind of sad because they're really great. 
Hmm. Yeah, that is a shame. Okay. Well, uh, sort of related to that, uh, if you want to keep an, keep tabs on that project and everything else uh, Reactive Micro is doing, uh, they have a new news section on their blog or on their website with uh, an RSS feed. So you can uh, be notified as soon as uh, anything changes uh, on that or any of their other projects. So we will link to that in the show notes. That's, I'm sure, the best possible way to keep tabs on what Reactive Micro is up to. Or you can just email Henry. I think the contact is, his contact info is on the site, and he seems to be more than happy to answer questions. So Yeah, in fact, he says feel free to email him anytime, uh, support at reactivemicro.com. So, and I'll get you in touch with Henry. Uh, okay, uh, that's all the feedback I have. Uh, Mike, do you have any? Yeah, I do have one more. This is a, a feedback posted on our uh, open-apple.net website. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> Uh, from Tom Porter. And Tom writes, Hello, I am Tom Porter, the creator of last year's Music Master RPG, and I have some news and a demo that perhaps you would like to try out if you don't happen to find it by normal means. I have been hard at work on a sequel to the Dogfighters of Mars game, and this time it features a ton of one-bit audio clips and cutscenes along with sprites and other things. I've also been working very hard at creating a system to make multitasking music possible without extra hardware, and I seem to have done it. Here's a demo of the SFX audio engine, and of course it's still in development, but I think it's pretty close to being workable on a large scale. Uh, Try it out, and if it's newsworthy, I would love to have you comment about it on your next edition of Open Apple, that or the Dogfighter game in general. Uh, there are a few demos of it floating around, and thank you for your time. And he's got a link to that demo that we'll have in the show notes. I have not had a chance to play this yet. Um, have you, Quinn? I have not, um, but I've been following Tom. He's been uh, busy on the Apple II Enthusiasts uh, Facebook group and also in the new uh, uh, Apple Arcade uh, arcade Game Design uh, Enthusiasts group, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, But yeah, he's been busy on uh, Facebook with his uh, audio exploits. And uh, yeah, this uh, sound engine that he's been building sounds really, really cool. My understanding is it runs entirely out of aux memory and uh, can run, you know, in parallel with whatever else your game is doing. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 really cool stuff. Uh, Tom's been doing a lot of really uh, pretty awesome audio things, so I will definitely be checking that out. Yeah, we'll talk about that uh, next time. And, yeah, we should give a quick shout-out to the uh, uh, Apple Graphics and Arcade Game Design Enthusiast Facebook group. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, this was started by Michael Packard, and it's a book by – it's based on a book by Jeffrey Stanton from 1984. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, January of 1984. It's uh... – Listed on Amazon, um, used copies start at $65, though, so might look elsewhere for a PDF or something. Yeah, well, good news on that front. So uh, there, there is a PDF of it on archive.org. Uh, and even better, uh, there is a PDF of it in this Facebook group. So uh, myself included, a lot of people don't know that Facebook groups have a files section. Uh, it's not very obvious, uh, but there is one. And the files section on this Facebook group has the PDF for you to read. So uh, so. Yeah, Michael's been uh, really, really busy. Uh, he's been sort of going through this book and kind of reteaching himself uh, Apple Arcade game programming. And he's got kind of, he's called it his sort of midlife crisis <laughs> of sorts. And, uh, you know, he's been posting, he's been very prolific posting videos of his progress. And uh, he's building kind of a Galaxian style alien vertical shooter. Uh, his progress is really remarkable. He's doing, uh, it's really fun to watch. And uh, he's really uh, doing a good job of selling this book because uh, clearly this book uh, is a very fast road to uh, getting the hang of uh, high rise graphics programming. Um, so I Which recommend it. Which is good it. because that's kind of intimidating. It is, yeah, it's very intimidating. And 
you know, I've been doing a little bit of that myself lately, starting with uh, the, you know, Chris Torrance's new edition of Roger Wagner's Assembly Lines. And that's a great read also for Apple II graphics. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, really, really enlightening, uh, you know, a, a book I wish I'd had back in the day. But uh, yeah, this uh, Apple graphics and arcade game design book uh, is really outstanding as well. Uh, it would have been easy to write off from the cover uh, because the cover art, it looks, it's a little bit cheesy. It looks like one of these kind of throwaway shovelware sorts of books. Uh, <laughs> but it turns out the content in it is, is really, really excellent. So uh, uh, yeah, I recommend uh, flipping through this um, Facebook group if you want to see some, some cool progress there. Awesome. All right, well, that's all the feedback we have. Uh, and I think that about wraps it up for the show. Uh, Mike, any closing thoughts? Um, I don't think so, not not this month. Um, thank you again, Kate, for, for joining us. It's, it's great. It's always always great to talk to somebody who has experience with the Apple II that's, that's not necessarily hardware design or software programming. We love having those people on as well, obviously, but it's, it's great to get other perspectives sometimes. Yeah. And I just absolutely love the enthusiasm and the excitement and the fresh ideas that she brought to K-Fest. You know, she was a breath of fresh air. So we'll be glad to see her next year as well. Yep, definitely. All right. Well, uh, until next month, uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll, we will talk to you later. See you soon. the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. That's a way to, to get a link to your, to your 2GS from modern equipment. Yeah. Good talk, Mike. Okay.